I love what Josh read in Psalm 19 today. Now, he could have read Psalm 119, but we figured Psalm 19 with the length of our service was maybe a little more appropriate this morning. But that's what God says about his word. Now, those who try to undermine the Christian faith, when they do that, the first thing they try to attack is the word of God. And as we saw last week um, in our coming together, we saw that this book, the Bible, the word of God, are the very words of God. And we know that the Bible claims that, but we kind of took a look at some, what do others say about it, and is there any other evidence? And we did, we saw externally, internally, evidences that say that there's divine fingerprints all over this book. This is a supernatural book that we have learned, we've received as a supernatural act of God as he breathed into those who wrote it so they're his very words. And we see the supernatural fingerprints all over this book. And what I want to answer this morning is this question. Can we rely upon and is the Bible that's in our hands today accurate? You know why that's important? Because my guess is, is that if we looked at every Bible in this room, there might be different words in our Bibles as people use different versions. And so now the question is, can we really rely upon the Bible we have in our hands today? And much after the vein of last week, we're going to kind of talk about some external evidences and stuff to help us understand that. Normally, if you're visiting with us, we normally preach right from God's word, what God has to say. Our messages last week and this week are really to support God's word and to help us understand and have the confidence that this book that we're building our lives upon and relying upon is a reliable and trustworthy book that is written by God himself through human authors. So let's take a look at that question this morning. And we're going to start with the, this whole idea of what they call manuscripts. Manuscripts were really the only way that they had uh, at the time after the original letters were written. They're hand copies of the original letters. And so as the church spread, there was a greater need for these copies to be made as the word was seeking to get around to other churches beyond just the original. There were people that were called scribes that did this work. Scribes took this work in a painstaking way and very serious. They had a great reverence for God's word. They had strict rules that they followed when they copied God's word. Uh, one of their commitments was nothing would be done from memory because human memory can obviously uh, have fault. And so they would go word for word copying the text. And they would use strict rules to uh, double check what they've done. They'd actually count how many lines are on the page. They would count uh, how many uh, letters are in each line and how many words. And uh, so, you know, they were very careful to copy the text, the original letter, so that it could be used by other churches so they could understand what was going on. Now, there's a study called textual criticism. 
And textual criticism basically studies all the manuscripts of the ancient text that are out there. And their goal is very simple, to get to what the original document said. That's what they do. These, these are scholars, they're critics, uh, they're in operation in doing that. And they don't just examine the biblical text, they, they, they examine all ancient text. Things like Plato's Republic, Aristotle's rhetoric, Homer's Iliad, even uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, these are the kind of things they study as they try to get back and say, what did the original document actually say? Their method was simple. Get all the available manuscripts that are out there and compare them with one another to come up with what the original one actually said. And the more copies you have, and the more recent it is to the actual writing of the date, the closer it was to the writing of the date, uh, the greater resource that can be for them in their studies. And when it comes to the New Testament, in the area of textual criticism, again, the, by the way, these aren't just believers that do this study. There's non-believers, people that don't believe in Jesus, people that are atheists and agnostics uh, that, that uh, will not accept Jesus or his word. They also do the work on these texts too. So this isn't just a Bibli you know, Christian thing about the Bible. But when it comes to all the ancient texts that there are, there is none that compares with the Bible. The, Bi the New Testament in particular is superior to every ancient text when it comes to textual criticism and trying to say how accurate and reliable is it to the original writings of the apostles. The reason for that is this. Simply because of the reverence that people held for God's word, they preserve those copies very carefully so the copies they have are well preserved and actually they're more numerous than any other one and actually closer to the dates than any other ones. So the Bible is really a text when it comes to textual criticism and the study of scholars, believers and non-believers that stands heads above every other ancient text. And here's the reality. If you want to dismiss the reliability and the accuracy of the Bible, you need to dismiss the writings of Plato, Aristotle, Shakespeare, Homer, Caesar, and all of them as being unreliable because when you test it, this is the most reliable book there is. Homer's Iliad is probably the outside the New Testament is the ancient literature that they have that, is, uh, that has the most copies, the most manuscripts, the handwritten copies, and the closest to the date. Actually, there are, uh, let me get this number down because memories do fail, right? <laughs> 1,757 manuscripts or copies of Homer's Iliad, and the earliest one they have is 400 years after the date he wrote it. Now, the New Testament, when you take all the manuscripts, both the Greek and the non-Greek ones, 
there's 23,986 manuscripts that they can compare and copy. So we're just 14 shy of 24,000. And the age of the New Testament, there's actually a fragment of the book of John that they have is only 29 years after the writing of the Gospel of John. A whole uh, book of the, of the New Testament they have within 100 years. The whole New Testament manuscript copies within 250 years. So when you see the comparison just with numbers and age between other ancient texts, there's no text like the New Testament. Add to that this. Quotations from church fathers. We met the church fathers last week. They were the early church leaders right after the apostles. Some of them actually knew some of the apostles and had relationships with them. And um, when you read the early church fathers, there's 86,000 direct quotations of the New Testament. Church lectionaries, they have thousands of them. Those were what different churches used at that time. And when they uh, quoted scriptures as well. So when you put this together, all the quotations from the church lectionaries as well as from the church fathers, they can literally reconstruct the whole New Testament except for 11 verses. That's amazing. <laughs> So there's a lot of evidence to work with when it comes to the New Testament to say, is this book really reliable, something I can trust in, and is it accurate? So here's the biggest concern. Here's where the flag goes up for me. I hear all that, then all of a sudden they talk about a thing called variances. Those are differences between the different manuscript copies. The New Testament actually has close to 300 to 400,000 variants. Go, whoa, wait a minute, I was following you until then. Well, remember this, we're talking about 24,000 basically manuscripts that they're comparing, and there's 300 to 400,000 differences in them. You need to know this. Again, these are textual critics. This isn't Pat's study. These are what the experts say, both Christian and non-Christian. 99.9% .9 of those are irrelevant variants that have no bearing on the text. They're either misspellings, or things like word order, like rather than saying Jesus Christ, it says Christ Jesus. It could be a letter that's missed out or a tense that is used wrongfully. So when you start, to, now you bring down the numbers, and what you're left with is 50 actual, what they call meaningful variants. There's 50 that are found, and they can identify every one of these that are significant because they actually have a bearing on the meaning of the text. So you following me? 99.9% .9 mean nothing. They're meaningless as far as the meaning of the text, the accuracy of the scripture is just a misspelling. And I certainly appreciate that because I misspell a lot of words. My wife looks at things. Uh, we have people, in the, everybody looks at Pat's stuff before it goes out to public because they know <laughs> we're in trouble if we just let Pat loose. But uh, mine goes through a lot, so I, so I can appreciate misspellings and things along the way. 
And so that's more, but now we get down to these 50 that actually this is where it comes. And rather than telling you what believers say about this, I want to tell you what one of the top non-believing atheists, agnostic, used to be an evangelical Christian that converted from Christianity to being an atheist and an agnostic says about these 50 meaningful variants. His name is Dr. Bart Ehrman, and this is his words about these 50 meaningful variants between these 24,000 different scripts. The bulk of these variants are essentially meaningless, and that's because we know what the meaningful variants are, and we can be assured that not one of them changes any core Christian doctrine. Guys, that's from an atheist, an agnostic, (laughs) a guy who converted from where we're at who would love to try to disprove what we believe. And yet he says when it comes to these 50 variants, which are what they call meaningful variants, not one of them changes anything that has to do with the core Christian doctrine. Take on top of it the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know if you ever heard of that before, but those were uh, some scrolls of the Old Testament that were found in the Qumran Caves back in 1947. Now before that, the oldest manuscript we had of the Old Testament, the oldest handwritten copy of the Old Testament that we had, complete Old Testament, was dated in 900 A.D. After Christ was born, 900 years after that, uh, that was the earliest manuscript we had of the Old Testament before these documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls, were found in the Qumran Caves back in 1947, and when they date these scrolls, they go back to 150 B.C. That's before Christ. So they found scrolls, and basically the whole Old Testament is represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so now they had a manuscript, so we had two manuscripts. The earliest one before that was 900 years, 900 A.D., Next one they found was 150 years before Jesus was born. Basically a 1,000, 1,050 year difference. And this is what is amazing. When you put those two manuscripts side by side, there are hardly any differences. There are some variants, but again, it's misspellings. It might have to do with word order or a letter left out, but there is basically very little difference. And what this shows us is this. Over 1,000 years, how well preserved God's original word was by the scribes who copied those manuscripts. And so I think we have enough evidence with us today that the fact that the documents when you take the originals, which they call the autographs that were written by the original authors of the scripture, the autographs, you take the copies, the manuscripts that are made of those, and when you come back and compare them, both Old and New Testament, 
There is no other book in ancient history that is more reliable or more accurate than the Bible. But we got another question. Well, what about, what about the ones we have in our hands today? I used the New American Standard, and I'll explain why in a couple minutes, but uh, there are people here today with the New Living Translation. There's people here with the NIV. There's people here with the ESV. There's people here with the King James, the New King James. You know, and so we got, there's people that might even have the message or the Total Passion Translation with them. What about that? We're going to find a lot of variants right here just in the English language between translations. So I, I want to address that. Translation, when it first began, is simply the process of moving the text from one language to another. As the Church of Jesus Christ spread and it moved into countries with different languages, it had, because churches needed copies of the Bible, people translated it into a new language. And so that was the work that they did of moving the text from one language to another because of the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The original text written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek had to be translated into the language of the people today. We get to uh, support missionaries of Wycliffe. They're doing the same work today. They're going into parts of the world that uh, don't have the scripture yet, and they're taking the Bible, and they're trying to translate it into the language of the people. So that's what they had to do back then. But what about today? Today, when there are um, translations that are made, and we're going to move towards understanding why we have different ones in our hands but when a translation is made, you need to know they're done by committees. And the reason for that is to protect against individual bias or theology. So in other words, you know, if it's just written by one person, they can read their bias into the text. But when it's a committee, they go, wait a minute, whoa, come on, wait, wait, that, that's what you believe. Let's pull that back and let's make sure this thing is tight and it's not influenced by your bias or your theological bent. So the uh, translations today are done by committee. Now I got to tell you a very interesting fact. How many of you have a new international version with you this morning? Raise your hand. Do you know where the NIV was written? Painless Heights. Illinois, a special committee met at Trinity College and met together to create a new version called the New International Version. Matter of fact, if you want to read about that, I think I got the name of the article here. As I was researching this, here's an interesting article you can look on the internet, how a small town, and they call us a small town. Are you guys offended by that? We're a significant city, aren't we? How a small town in Illinois and a golf course helped shape the modernized Bible. Now, only if you've lived in Palos a real long time, you know there used to be a golf course over here. We're not talking about the golf course that used to be over here that people are living on now and some of their homes on. I can't remember, was it called? I can't remember what the name of that golf course was. 
But uh, when I was a kid, I remember being over, there was a golf course in this area that was next to where uh, Trinity is. And so it talks about how a small town in Illinois, basically a Trinity College, a committee of people came together to form that. So that's just some extra reading you may want to do if you're interested in that. But there's two kinds of translations today. There's what they call a word-for-word translation and a thought-by-thought translation. Let me tell you what that means. And uh, the word-for-word translation, they took the original language uh, manuscripts. They took the manuscripts, the copies that are written in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and that's what they use. And their goal is this. I want to be accurate to the original words that are written. And so I want to take this word that is in Greek, and I want to take the exact same word that would be in English, or at least the closest word to it, and put that in the English Bible. So a word-for-word translation's goal was accuracy and trying to be as close as they can. When this word says this, I want this word to say this. You following me? Now, thought for thought has a different purpose. Their goal is to help people to understand the meaning of the text in a fashion that is more readable and understandable to them. Listen to what their goal was. I think, or no, their struggle. This is, this is what they struggled with is they tried to make one that was more readable. Should it be the more exact word even if the meaning of the word is unclear to the modern reader? Or should it be a corresponding thought at the expense of a more literal reading? So when you move into thought-by-thought translations, their desire is to make it more readable to the person, uh, even if they don't use the word-for-word, which at times might seem Difficult. You take the King James Version, for instance. The King James Version was written for King James uh, in England with the language that was used back at that time. Verily, verily. Now, if I talked about that today, most people have no idea what verily, verily means. That was the language of England at that time. They'd, everybody know what that is, but we know it means truly, truly. <laughs> so what, the, what happens here is that... Uh, uh, They try to take things and communicate them in ways that are more understandable as they translate the scripture. I want to show you a chart of different translations. I hope you can see it from where you're sitting. That's probably going to be hard for you to see. Um, If you want it, let me know. Or if enough people want it, we'll put it up uh, by the notes of the message. But on the, what would be your left side would be the word for word translations all the way over to the right for the thought for thought. For instance, the interlinear Bible. That's what I have right next to my, uh, in my, in my studies, I have the interlinear right next to the New American Standard that I use because it basically lays out the Greek for you and the English underneath it and gives you all the tenses and all those kind of things to understand it. Then the New American Standard 
is the uh, one that they say is the most word-for-word accurate English translation we can have. The Amplified, again, does the same idea, except for every once in a while, they'll amplify a word. They'll they'll stop on a word and kind of open it up a little bit more for you so you can understand what it means. ESV, the Revised Standard, the King James, the New King James, and you keep on moving over Many of those won't be familiar to, but you see right in the middle, what? The N-I-V, New International Version. And um, part of it is in its name, it was really written for the international community. And so they were not as concerned about just getting word for word accurate. They started to bring in some thought for thought. They're kind of like in the middle between the different translations of how they work. Then you move over, and we see over about four Bibles, the New Living Translation. Many people use that one. I think it's a great translation. I look at it often. Uh, You keep on moving over, you get near the end, you'll see the message, which many people use. And then uh, a newer one today is called the Total Passion Translation. Pete, can we go to the, the Total Passion Translation, then back to this chart? This is what they say their purpose is. If you read it in the front, the goal is a new heart-level translation that expresses God's fiery heart of love to this generation using the Hebrew, the Greek, and Aramaic. So you got to remember this. While it, you know, some people say, well, man, it's so, you know, broad like this. They started with the Greek, the Hebrew, and the Aramaic manuscripts that were available And their goal is to communicate in a very passionate way God's truth, merging the emotion and life-changing truth of God's word. Let's go back to this chart for a second. And actually, I I like reading and looking at the Total Passion Translation. Let me explain a couple things. Because some people fight over this. Some people think that the King James is what Paul used, and so everybody should use that. Uh, That's certainly not the case. But um, so what we we understand, then there's other people feel things like the New Living Translation or the Total Passion Translation. That's heresy. And if you use that, you're leaving the faith because it's not the word for word thing. They have different purposes. And when you understand the purpose of the translation, they've become a servant to you. You following me? And so let's not get so uptight to feel if somebody reads the Total Passion Translation because they're trying to communicate something in a more understandable, readable way that all of a sudden they've left the faith and they can't be trusted anymore. I use the New American Standard. I used to use the New International Version when I preached here at Moraine. And I switched from that for this reason. Because there were so many times when I checked it against the Greek manuscripts or the Hebrews, the Hebrew manuscripts, I found myself saying that's not really what the Bible is saying at this point. And I got to the place, people aren't going to trust their Bible if I keep on doing that. If I keep up standing up and say, well, that really isn't what it says. It really says this. People go, whoa, can can I trust this thing? 
And because of the nature, and again, I'm not telling you, if you got the NIV here today, you shouldn't be using it, but understand it's not a word-for-word -word translation. It's right in the middle between thought-for-thought thought and word-for-word. Word. The reason I went to the New American Standards because I didn't have to keep on saying, well, that isn't really what it says. Now I can say, like the Amplified, let me help you better understand what this word means because when you try to take a word from the Greek, and a word from the English, you get the closest you have, but it doesn't always perfectly capture what the original language says. And so now when I do that, I'm only amplifying and helping you understand rather than say, well, that really isn't what the text says. You, you following me? And so that's why I use the New American, ESV, same thing would be a great version. King James, all those would be great word for word versions which you can do the same. But you start moving to the right, you need to understand the difference. Now when I talk to a brand new believer in Jesus, and I recommend the Bible to him, I always recommend the New Living Translation because it's more readable for them. And it's a translation that I think, again, has worked from the original manuscripts, but is working to try to make it a little bit more readable to somebody who is newer to the faith. So, and I love looking at what the total passion says because it says with such emotion. You know, I think those of you that know me, I'm, I'm kind of like, uh, I'm not the most emotional guy in the world. And um, so I try to, f how can I feel this and see this a little bit better? And so I, I use other translations for two, per I, tr I preach from this one because I, it's a word for word about as accurate as you can be along with the ESV, the, you know, those others you could use as well. But I look at other versions for two reasons. One, I want to see what do other scholars say about the way they interpret this? Because these weren't a bunch of, uh, what do you want to say, unintelligent. These are, these are some of the best minds of the world getting together and saying, how do we translate this for the purpose that we want? And so I love to say, hey, I'm struggling with understanding what this text actually means. Let me see how others have looked at it. Then I can become like the textual critic. Now I can compare between different texts and look at the interlinear and look at the original and say, what is this actually trying to say? Because my goal is to get to the truth so I can communicate it to you. And so it's very helpful to look at other translations to see how others do it, to kind of break us out of what they call post-hole thinking, where I just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper in my own thought rather than lateral thinking that says, I'm going to look at it through different lenses. You following me? And so when I look at other translations, this helps me look at the text from other points of view, from what other scholars have said, but I'm always anchored here, if you're a teacher, I'm gonna encourage you to start with this. Don't start with the New Living Translation or the Total Passion or the Message. You wanna start with that which is closest to the original text. The other reason I look at um, other translations is sometimes the way they say it is fair to the text, but much more understandable to people as you read it. And sometimes I want to read it from a different version because I think it's accurate to the text, but it so connects with our ability to understand today in Chicago. They could write a Chicago version that has derelicts with things like bro and stuff like that in there, and you'd know exactly what it means. 
So that's why we do that. And I just want to, I want to help you understand today, we need to get away from being judgmental towards those who use a different version. I don't think there's a lot here that do, but there are some who kind of, well, if you don't use this version, you are leaving the faith. We just need to understand the purpose for them and let them all be tools to help us get to the truth that we can build our lives on and rely upon because it's from God's word. So I guess what I'm trying to say to you is this. This book we have in our hands today is reliable and it's accurate. It's built off of manuscripts that we've learned are very accurate and reliable. We need to understand the purpose of the different translations so we don't get all tripped up and saying, what's going on here? You know, how, how can this be? But understand they were written for different purposes to minister to different kinds of people. But this book we have in our hands, we can receive like the Thessalonians received the message from Paul for what it really is. Not the word of men, but the word of God. And so when we take all these different translations and we try to look at this, um, we find out that, and as they seek to be faithful to the text, the message at the heart is the same. It's a God who has bound himself by covenants to fulfill promises that he made to his people. And those promises are primarily fulfilled in a person who in the Old Testament they called the Messiah. In the New Testament they called him the Christ. That means Messiah. That's Greek from Hebrew. There's a translation there. And we know him as Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the central person of this book. And the message is God redeeming man for his own glory through the person of Jesus Christ. And I just want to, just before we go to communion, I, I, I want to read John 3.16 through some different versions. So you can get the feel for how they kind of work a little bit differently. Primarily up front when they're trying to communicate God's love. New American Standard. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now here's an amplified Bible. Remember I said very very tight to the original wording, but they'll amplify. Usually we see those parentheses there. It's to try to give you a little bit better feel for what, how it goes. For God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that he even gave his one and only begotten son so that whoever believes and trusts in him as Savior shall not perish but have eternal life. So we see the Amplified trying to help us understand a little bit more of what's going on. Here's the New Living Translation. Now we're moving more into a thought for thought, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Total Passion Translation, for this is how much God loved the world. He gave his one and only unique son 
as a gift. So now everyone who believes in him will not perish, but experience everlasting life. You know, guys, not only does the book we have in our hand, is it reliable, but we need to understand that the truth is Jesus. He came to give his life and it's because God so loved, God didn't just love the world, he so loved the world. This is how much God loved the world. He loved us so much that he gave his only begotten. I couldn't imagine giving one of my daughters away or grandkids away for the sake of other people. But God so loved us that he gave his only begotten, unique son, Jesus, who's God himself, who is the truth, who is the one we can build our life around and rely upon and depend upon, that when we put our faith in Jesus, God takes us from death and moves us to life. 